0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. In the 1970s, hardly anyone talked about breast cancer. It was taboo. Really, until one of the first women to talk about it was Betty Ford, the President Gerald Ford's um, wife and because she had it. And she really was one of the first people to break down the taboo of talking about breast cancer. Now, you know, we know of millions of women who've had it, unfortunately, because that taboo is, is no longer in existence. And what happens? The NFL has people wearing pink shoes and breast cancer awareness nights and donations and so on. That would not have happened before that taboo was broken.
1: Hello and welcome back to Take Line. Jordan Liggins here, host of the Spinsters podcast and a freelance basketball journalist. I'm with you today while Jason Conception takes a well-deserved break from the grind now that the NBA season is over. We've got a really important show for you today. Friday's Supreme Court decision was one of those moments in American history that sent echoes throughout all corners of society and the sports world is no exception. The overturning of Roe v. Wade represents an extremely dark moment in the fight for women's rights. And Rachel Bachman of the Wall Street Journal joins us to discuss athletes' reactions to the decision. Then, as Title IX turns 50, we discuss the realities and limitations of the laws with Rachel Axon of USA Today. I have so many feelings and emotions from this news. I think anger is the first one. I feel like I screamed, I cried, I read too much. I wanted to stop reading tweets in the news. It blows my mind that the decision, a very, very difficult decision comes down to someone else making it for me as a woman, as a black woman. It's layered. There's so many levels to it. And I think anger is the number one feeling and also hurt for so many women, because as we know, with this recent decision, it does not ban abortions. There are still going to be unsafe avenues that women are going to be forced to take. And that hurts me. It hurts me that we're, we're forcing that onto someone and not just saying like, hey, this is your body, whatever you choose to do. I'm not even gonna go down the road of what pro-life means and how we banned abortions before AR-15s. That's a whole other discussion for a different day. But I hope throughout this episode, we can talk through it together because this is a really, really tough time. But specifically for sports, let's gauge the sports world's reaction with Rachel Bachman of The Wall Street Journal. Friday was a horrible day. I think that's. Almost an understatement um, in American history. The consequences of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will be innumerable in the days, months and years to come. But what we know for sure is that the decision has been met with outrage, disappointment and immediate resistance from all corners of society, including sports. The avalanche of negative reactions from across the sports spectrum has rung loudly and here to help us document and discuss the conversation athletes are having around this latest American travesty is Rachel Bachman, senior sports reporter of The Wall Street Journal. Rachel, welcome to Take Line. Thanks
0: so much for having me, Jordan.
1: Yay. Thanks for being here. I first want to start with your personal account, your story when you learned the verdict on Friday where were you? How did you see it? What was your first reaction?
0: Honestly, I I don't exactly remember how I heard it, probably on Twitter, like I hear about most news. Um, but it, it, my reaction was similar to a lot of people in that people sort of knew this was coming because of the leak, but it was still stunning to see. I think this is the first time that the Supreme Court has actually taken away a right that it had previously granted. And so that fact alone was pretty shocking, no matter how how you come down on the the law itself.
1: And I was thinking about that, too, because of the leak. Imagine if we didn't have that and this news just hit out of nowhere. It was a a softer blow, but it still it still hurt. It was it was terrible.
0: It it was shocking. It it was definitely shocking. It's funny because we did have the leak. And so a lot of people were prepared, but it, it was still shocking. Um, because the reality is always, I guess, a little different from the,
1: the possibility. Yes. And in the sports world, I think a lot of people forget that athletes are humans first and women's sports athletes. They are women's first. So I know you've been following some of the reactions from a lot of athletes and people in the sports community over the weekend. Some of the biggest names have spoken out. Any comments in particular have stood out to you?
0: Well, I think the most remarkable statement was from Megan Rapino of the US women's national team. And it just so happens that the ruling came down the day before the US women's team had a friendly game already scheduled and they had a media availability scheduled. Megan Rapino was not scheduled to be on that media availability. They just usually make one player who happened not to be her that day and a coach available. And um, but she she chose to speak to the media because she has become, you know, she's been a captain of this team and she has become, um, as many people know, very outspoken on a whole range of issues. And she was fighting tears as she spoke about it. She called the decision sad and cruel and, you know, what, what was was very emotional about it. And, you know, you just look at the, at the statistics of, you know, you look at opinion polls nationwide and so on about this issue. And, you know, generally speaking, younger people tend to favor abortion rights and women tend to favor abortion rights. And I haven't seen this poll, but I would guess that probably female athletes tend to favor abortion rights above the, the national average. And so when you combine all of those things, um, you can draw the conclusion that many, many female athletes were very upset by this decision. And that's what we saw play out in the reactions.
1: Yeah, that video was so powerful of Megan Rapino. It was nine minutes. She was just talking from the heart, fighting back tears. And it felt like she was talking for all of us. It was it was really amazing. But on the flip side of that, has anyone's silence kind of surprised you or anyone not speaking out from leagues or Anything else? Well, we, we probably shouldn't
0: be surprised by the fact that the, the most, the fastest and the, the um, most outspoken teams and leagues about this were women's teams and leagues. So we heard from the National Women's Soccer League, which is the professional league for women's soccer in the U.S. We heard from the, the WNBA Players Association very quickly. And then the most interesting reaction I thought was from the NBA and WNBA, which issued a joint statement and the the NBA arguably has been the most progressive major U.S. men's league in terms of becoming involved in social issues and being outspoken and so on. Um, but it, it was interesting to me that that league issued a statement in conjunction with its women's equivalent. Um, I don't. It's it's an interesting question whether the NBA, you know, if the WNBA didn't exist, if the NBA would have. Issue that statement I, I don't know maybe it would have, but so far, I have not seen other major men's leagues make statements on this issue. Maybe I missed it, but in the about the twenty four hours after this de- the decision came down, I didn't see anything from any other major men's professional leagues.
1: does that surprise you at all or are we I would hope that it, <laughs> all the statements would be overflowing, but what do we need from male athletes and male leagues from this time. Like you, you, this is not the time to ghost us and be silent. Well, it it
0: actually doesn't surprise me very much because even as leagues have become more outspoken on various issues, they also have tended to be outspoken on issues that either um, their players care intensely about and are very outspoken about. So after George Floyd's killing, we heard from the NFL, which, you know, that league really was not very outspoken about issues of racial justice before that. Some people would say- very silent in some ways. You know, there has been this change and shift in pro leagues to be more outspoken about issues. But at the same time, you know, in particular, the NFL and Major League Baseball have pretty large constituencies of conservative fans. They have large, for one, they're just very large fan bases. And two, they tend to be older fan bases than, for instance, the NBA or Major League Soccer, for instance. And so those things alone made me fairly unsurprised that they didn't at least initially issue statements about this ruling and just stayed out of it
1: right, right. I know we heard from um LeBron James and some other prominent individual male athletes um what do you think if if there was a male athlete listening to this right now, what do we? kind of need from them to use their platform to help their female athletes kind of talk about this or show support in any way? What would you think?
0: Well, obviously, it's an individual decision, right? And since I'm a reporter, not a columnist, it's not my job to advocate for certain things. But you know, if if someone um, I mean, I, I think there is a level of empathy here that men could show in that this issue does disproportionately affect women and that also, you know, one point I want to make is that this issue is often painted as, you know, abortion is completely elective and it only happens when someone's been careless. And I think that's sort of a very, very, very narrow look at things. There's a lot of reasons why women in general and female athletes in particular can't be on certain forms of birth control, can't be on hormonal birth control, or maybe even can't be on birth control at all. There are all sorts of contexts. there are, you know, there are reasons why women who um who are pregnant who who got pregnant on purpose, but have health challenges or complications can't carry a pregnancy to term. And so I think those are the things that most upset many women because they fear that they can't make those decisions now. Um, And in particular, women in certain states are going to have a much harder time making those decisions. And so um, I, I just wanted to make that point that, you know, this is an issue that arguably affects women much more than men, obviously, Um, But a particular, female athletes for whom their bodies are their are their livelihoods. You know, Um, I don't know if you you probably remember, you know, years ago, the great sprinter Sonia Richards Ross talked in her memoir about how she didn't have she'd had an abortion. It was it was a completely agonizing decision and very difficult. And how sort of the that decision and its aftermath really complicated things with her then fiance and, and husband, partly because he couldn't at a certain level, he couldn't be involved and so I think that's just one example of many where women just carry a much heavier burden in this issue. And of course, female athletes in particular, that was right before the 2008 Beijing Olympics. So really awful, terrible um, position she was in to, to make before those games.
1: I immediately thought about her story um, when, when thinking about this and how this ruling affects the sports industry. I think a lot of people might not see them connected in any way, but like I said at the top of this, women athletes are women first and their bodies, they have to be in shape. They have to do all these things and they're in their prime and there's so much thing, there's thoughts that have to go on and that should be their decision when they would love to be a mom or start that process, does this ruling affect the, the sports industry? How else is it connected and tied together?
0: You know, it's, it's hard to articulate that because, well, of course it affects women because it affects their bodies and anything that affects women's bodies is gonna affect you know women's sports. But here's an example of something that I, I feel like has become a big issue because it's become normalized to talk about. In the 1970s hardly anyone talked about breast cancer it was taboo really until one of the first women to talk about it was betty ford the president gerald ford's wife and because she had it and she really was one of the first people to break down the taboo of talking about breast cancer now you know we know of millions of women who've had it unfortunately because that taboo is is no longer in existence and what happens the NFL has people wearing pink shoes and breast cancer awareness nights and donations and so on. That would not have happened before that taboo was broken. And so this is just a very different situation. I think there's still so much of a taboo about this issue that we don't really, the general public really doesn't have any broader awareness of how prevalent abortions are. We, we just, you know, we don't because people don't talk about them. It's, you know, Sonia Richards-Ross stands out because, She's a rarity and having been so honest about it. And so I think that is one challenge of articulating how potentially profound this issue is. I mean, even aside from the choice, which is much broader than the number of women who end up having abortions for whatever reason, you know, it is still such a taboo to talk about that um, we don't have those broader discussions and those casual, I shouldn't say casual, but, you know, those, those conversations about helping make things better in some way, you know. And so like improving health care outcomes, for instance, for everybody, which which I think everybody should, can agree should happen. You know, there should be better health care and health support because a lot of the healthcare care outcomes in this country are are sub suboptimal for how, how wealthy a country are. So it's very difficult to say what the ramifications of this are at this moment, because I don't think that I don't think we have a sense of how profoundly this issue has already affected women and female athletes because it is taboo. You know, so many of them have dealt with some variation of this issue in silence. And I think that's going to continue as long as this is a taboo.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, Sonia Richards-Ross was incredibly brave to come forward and share her story. But I, I feel and I hope that other female athletes know that we we want to have that empathy. And if they do come forward and share their stories, it's only in support and be able to put a face to this issue. I think a lot of times it is this taboo, very far different, far away thing, unless it becomes your story or a part of someone that, you know. Thank you so much for being here and talking us through this. This was I felt like we were holding hands and going through this together. So thank you so much.
0: <laughs> thank, thank you, Jordan. It's really we're, we really are entering uncharted territory because you know really almost every female athlete alive right now has existed in a, in a world a row, and so we're now entering you know a a, a new era, and so it's very hard to say what that's going to be like.
1: Well, we'll be we're in this together. We got to hold, hold each other up. She is Rachel Vogman, senior sports reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Rachel, thank you again for joining Take Line. Thanks so much, Jordan. Appreciate your time. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But We need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash takeline. That's T-A-K-E-L-I-N-E. And take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash takeline. That's T-A-K-E-L-I-N-E. Thanks for your help.
0: Dental Associates of Northern
2: Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized
0: treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental one bacom slash offer slash XM.
1: In 1972, Title IX was enacted to protect students from sex-based discrimination in any school or in any other educational program that receives funding from the federal government. 50 years later, the argument can easily be made that it must be strengthened in order to better serve and protect a more diverse spectrum of students and definition of sexual identity. Here to discuss the legacy of Title IX as well as its future is Rachel Axon, an investigative sports reporter with USA Today. Rachel welcome to Take Line. Hello, thank you for having me. Yay, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with a zoom out and a macro view of Title IX. Um, last week was the 50th anniversary and it seemed like it was a party and we were celebrating, and we were talking about the history, but what are some of the circumstances in this country that led to the law originally being enacted and what is this law supposed to protect?
2: So the simplest version is it protects from discrimination on the basis of sex at any school that receives money from the federal government. Public school, private school, uh, it's a broad range. It's kindergarten all the way up through graduate schools. And when it was first envisioned, uh, they meant to address, you know, women not being allowed to get into graduate programs. Um, and nobody kind of foresaw the effect that it's had on on sports and on athletics. And uh, I think it's fair to say, The the landscape we're in today would be virtually unrecognizable to anybody in 1972 when they were first uh, seeking to pass this law. It's obviously most well-known for its um, impact on on sports and athletics, um, although its protections apply much more broadly than that. When the law passed, there were fewer than 30,000 collegiate um, athletes who were women and then fewer than 300,000 high school athletes who were women. That's now more than 3.4 million girls competing in high school and more than 219,000 women competing in NCAA. So certainly in terms of opening the doors, the opportunities, and then you look and you see the ripple effects, right? The skills, the the lessons, the things that we all know are good about sports for men, women are reaping those benefits. And so, you know, there's a study that showed 94% of women in the C-suite had um, background in athletics certainly i wouldn't have my job right if if it's not acceptable for women to play it's certainly not acceptable for women to um to write about them so there's there's so many ways in which it's it's opened the doors and the increase of opportunity has really changed things for women and girls
1: yes that is a beautiful description of it. I played college basketball. I would not have been able to with the scholarship without title nine. And I did a story recently on the 37 words documentary that ESPN just dropped. And, uh, it was kind of surprising that it became it started in education. I think it's so sports is so forward facing. So a lot of people thought that that was the anchor of it. But it was education because it's kind of the blanket statement of education and sports fit into that. I always found that interesting.
2: Yeah, there's definitely um, a realization pretty immediately after it packs the pass because it says any program or activity. So this protects you if you were in the marching band or if you're in a STEM program or whatever other program or activity a school might sponsor. And in the 70s, they started to realize like, oh, oh, this might affect sports. And so you saw all these attempts to pass amendments to exempt football or exempt revenue producing sports, things like that, that I think they realized pretty quickly after it passed that this was going to have an impact. Um, But even then, it still has taken, you know, decades to, to do that.
1: Yes, yes. And I want to talk about your work, too, and what you did for USA Today. You and your colleague recently carried out a lengthy report on athletic programs at the nation's top colleges and universities. What were some of your findings and specifically regarding roster inequalities on campuses?
2: Sure. So we've been working on this um, for more than a year, looking at different parts of you know compliance um, or ways schools can be measured with the law. Uh, Most recently, we came out with a story looking at proportionality, and there's a way that schools can show compliance with how many opportunities they're giving women. If your school's 60% women, then your athletic opportunities should be roughly close to that. And what we found is 87% of schools in the FBS could not show that. We're we're not even close. Collectively, 110 schools would need to add 11,501 opportunities for women to get there. There's there's two other ways they can show compliance, but those are very difficult, as we outline in our reporting. So just in terms of like even being able to get on the field, it's still very difficult at the highest level. And you know, we focused in on these colleges and university because they're the, you know, they're the ones that people know, right? Um, you know, it's it's Michigan, it's Wisconsin, it's uh, you know, all these Alabama, all these schools that we highlighted. Um and so rather than actually giving women those opportunities, many schools are sort of rigging the numbers to make it look more like they are. And so we we dug into different sort of roster manipulation tactics to see how they're doing them. The first one is uh, double and triple counting women to a far, far greater degree than they do the men. So the federal government says if you have one athlete and that person participates in more than one season or more than one sport, then they can count more than once. But what that does is if you have a female distance runner, she's now two to three times as valuable As her male counterpart, because she can count in cross country, indoor track and field, outdoor track and field. And so we see schools inflating their women's rosters and then multiplying them, even though they may not compete very much. It's not necessarily the same kind of opportunity. So as an example, cross country is a sport where you count five runners at Florida State. They had 13 men on their cross country team in the year that we looked at and 43 women. And so far more than they need. But then you you take that and you multiply it, and it certainly looks like they're offering women more opportunities than, than they are. Um, another way schools do this, the ones that have rowing, we've seen um, overwhelmingly tend to stuff their rosters with novice or new athletes who don't really ever get a chance to compete, don't show up, um, you know, by the time spring season rolls around. That's fairly common. And then the other one that stood out is um, – the, the federal government, under uh, a related law, allows schools to count male practice players as female participants for the teams they practice with. So very commonly, and you may know this from your time play, uh women's basketball will have male practice players that they practice against. When that gets reported to the federal government, they just count those. And so it looks like there's more women. And there's, like, there's a little caveat box in the data that explains how many men count. But when we looked at it and and did all these comparisons, we found that at least a quarter of the female basketball players reported to the federal government at these schools were male practice players. So, (laughs) yes, (laughs) yes. Um, So when you add all those those, you know, means of manipulation up, these schools collectively added um, uh, 30 more than thirty six hundred opportunities for women without adding a single new team. And so they can make their numbers look better. And everyone asks, you know, why Why do they do that? And the reason is to avoid scrutiny. You know, people still don't have a lot of awareness about Title IX, their their rights under it, how to, how to exercise those rights. But if you do know that and you go to the only place where there's publicly available numbers and they look better, then that may deter you from Filing a federal complaint with the Department of Education, which anybody can do, or filing a federal lawsuit against the school. So we know that there's a big gap in opportunities. And instead of closing that gap in opportunities, they are just making it look like it's not as bad as it is. Mm.
1: Wow. I, I also had that question to the why. Is there a financial reason for them to... To not provide, well, there's always there's always money involved somehow. So how does money play into this, I guess, is the bigger question?
2: Well, well, that's obviously a huge factor. And that gets into some of our our other reporting. You know, we're looking at FBS schools, football bowl subdivision. These are the biggest football schools. And uh, almost without exception, they devote the most resources in terms of, you know, personnel, scholarships, money, et cetera, et cetera, to one or two men's sports, right? Football and, and men's basketball. But you don't need to have you don't you know, there's nothing in Title IX that says you have to give the women's volleyball team with 16 members the same amount of money that you give the men's football team with 116 members. But there are things that that the law requires in terms of treatment, you know, like once you get them on your campus, you can't just like give one team the Taj Mahal and have the other one playing in the parking lot type stuff. And so Um, The federal government has a list of 11 items. It's called the laundry list where they'll go in and they'll assess a school. You know, how how equitable is the publicity, um, the recruiting money, the um, access to medical care all down this list. And so we during the final four studied this and looked at the, the same FBS schools for equipment, travel and recruiting money. And we just looked at comparable teams. So if a team has a men's basketball team and a women's basketball team men's soccer, women's soccer. We picked six sports where where there was a, a balance in that. And between them, we found in those three categories, for every dollar that those schools spent on the men's team, they spent 71 cents on the women's team. When you, when you add that up over the two years that we looked at, it was a difference of $125 million, just in those three categories. I think the one thing that will stick out to me, and I can't tell you how many times we talked about this example, the University of Louisville, And basketball spent 13 times as much for the men on equipment as it did for the women in that that two-year period. Now, some of that, some of it is shared, so it's not like a a totally true reflection they explained to us, but there's a lot that was not. In one purchase that they went to a sporting goods store, the men's team spent $2,500 on socks. That amount is more than 10% of what the women's team spent on equipment, period, for the two years. And the men are spending it on socks. Yes. So so you you see this difference in treatment, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean these schools are, are for sure out of compliance because there's a whole, they, you know, they would be assessed on the whole program. But if you have these really big gaps and red flags on sports that are similar, it's kind of hard to see how a school could offset that by, you know, we treat the football team really well, but then we also treat, you know, uh softball rowing and women's lacrosse really well like it it gets a lot harder to do so those were some pretty big red flags in regards to title nine
1: compliance and you know what else sticks out to me the women's team was way better than the men's team so they can have their money with their socks but the women were at the final four about to win a national championship
2: well and that was that was one of them um the Yukon the women right you know Gino Oream in the coach legendary coach of the team later said you know we have everything we need but i think we found around 1.2 million dollars more spent on the men's team in those areas than on the women's team which is kind of shocking right like Yukon women are are the standard in women's basketball um Gino's contention was you know I don't need to recruit like they do, which is probably fair. <laughs> you
1: know, classic probably Gino. If that was a quote from <laughs> Gino Oriama, like classic. Yes,
2: <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and that they they travel different, and this th- this we saw a lot where like you know the men's team will always charter, have a bigger travel party, things like that, and the women's team uh, might fly commercial. And and, you know, go with a a smaller group, stuff like that. So when you add it all up, it's a lot of big differences, even at the programs where the women are really, really
1: good. We talked about how, you know, the history of it. And I feel like you are you and your colleague did an amazing job of showing like, yes, this is an equity law, but there's still things that aren't equal and we still have a lot of work to do. And recently, President Biden has said that Title IX needs to be strengthened in order to. Overhaul the Trump era guidance on how schools handle sexual assault cases, too, under Title IX. Is there a real plan to do so or was this just politicking on the anniversary?
2: No, there, there is a real plan. So what, what we've seen in regards to um, enforcement of the law, and this applies to all areas, you know, it, as you mentioned, it covers sexual misconduct. It covers protections for um, pregnant um, students. Uh, covers uh, protections now that, you know, the Biden administration has clarified for LGBTQI plus students. So it's very broad in that regard. We see it go back and forth. The pendulum swing under Democratic administrations, it tends to be more of a focus on enforcement, less so under Republican administrations. And under the Trump administration, the secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, passed some rules that um, basically limited the scope of, Cases that that schools have to respond to when they learn about sexual assault, and you know, victims' advocates said, you know, really, we're meant to deter reporting and give rights to accused students. This is going back the other way now. It's a it's a it's a process that takes time in the rulemaking. To you know, they'll put out their regulations. There will be a comment period, um, and then they have to follow this sort of stricter process. So it's harder to undo than some of the other things the department does, just issuing a letter of guidance
1: but they have started the process and that's what they announced last week. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> it's going to be a while. They have, but they started, have started, they have started. Yeah. And it, it, it is, you know, as an anniversary, any type of anniversary comes up, we, we do focus on it. So I'm happy that there are things that are actually taking place and not just saying, Hey, things need to change and not doing anything. But going back to what you were saying about the colleges, I just curious, like, how does the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, factor in all of this? Like, what is he doing or not doing? Because we know NCAA can be a little shady sometimes to push gender equality forward. What is he doing? Do we know? Is he MIA?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. So, technically speaking, the NCAA does not have an obligation under Title IX. There's actually a Supreme Court case about this, um, where because they don't directly receive federal funding, then they're not obligated by the law. They're not bound by the law. Others have argued all of their members, you know, they are made up of the schools. All of their members are, um, but so they are not. And we've obviously seen the gender equity issues with the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago, a Prince highlighting all of the issues there. And then they, you know, commissioned this law firm to study it. But the NCAA as an organization effectively has not played a, a role in, in schools complying with this. They used to have... You know, starting in the 90s to uh, 2011, this process where schools, in order to be members, had to be certified and come up with a a range of plans. So they had to assess how they were doing on gender, how they were doing on race, and several other things. Do a report, give it to the NCAA, and the NCAA would say yes or no. To To my knowledge, they never didn't certify a school. They would just look at it and say, well, oh, you know, fix this. But there was at least something that the NCAA was doing that said, like, Are you providing like equitable opportunities based on gender? When Mark Emmert came to the NCAA, they ended that. It has never come back. Um, So, so, so they don't, they don't, um, you know, other than, you know, sort of encouraging it informally, they don't have a role and they're not bound by the law. Uh, I think there's, you know, some people in Congress, especially those who have been involved in the, um, you know, questions about amateurism and NIL, those sorts of things, who would like to see that change. I don't know how much support there would be for that within Congress, but uh, th- they don't necessarily have a role. Certainly, we need greater enforcement from the government and other places. But uh, it's, you know, if we want this to keep um, living up to the law's promise, then NCAA is not going to lead us there.
1: Not as uh, not surprising to me on on some <laughs> some sense. But for the for the last question, I think kind of looking towards the future: is there a world in which Title IX protections are ever repealed. I don't want to think of. I, I, I don't know. I, I want it to be changed. But could we be living in the world given Friday's horrendous Supreme Court decision where things change and not for the better?
2: I, I think I could never predict that. Right. Like uh, this is certainly well-established law. I think maybe the thing in favor of that not happening is that there's not a lot of enforcement of it now. We're continuing our reporting, the the whole team of us at USA Today, and we'll be looking at sexual misconduct and specifically looking at enforcement. And this law is there, but effectively there's no consequence for breaking it. And what started us on this project was, you know, experts and people we talked to around athletics and um, just another reporting, everyone saying like, they're not complying. Of course they're not complying. Nobody's complying. What are you talking about? And just accepting it is like this kind of like widespread understanding and everyone just kind of knows it. And so we went out to, like, test that. How true is that? Can we show that if that's the case? And as we do our reporting, that's that's really backing this up. Part of the problem is the Department of Education that investigates this, um, its Office for Civil Rights is really underfunded, really understaffed. You know, they, they primarily respond to complaints that they get. So unless something filters up to the point of a complaint, um, it's really, you know, um, not going to be on the radar. And then even when they do those, they take a long time. They get the school to sign a resolution agreement that says, like, we promise we will fix X, Y, Z or whatever. And then it still takes years to do. So if you're a a student who's been discriminated against, you're probably gone by the time anything does get fixed, if it does get fixed. The only sanction they have is to revoke federal funding from the school, which has not happened in 50 years. And the schools know this. So there's no cost for them to not comply. Where we've seen greater success is through lawsuits. But again, that's got significant barriers. A student's got to know they're being discriminated against, have the wherewithal to go through with a lawsuit. Those still take time to go through. And so it's really, really difficult given that. Um, you know, we have the law as of right now. I don't think it's going anywhere, but it's also not being enforced in a way that's really making making schools live up to the, you know, if not the letter, then at least the intent of it.
1: Yeah, well, I know that, we still have a long way to go, but we have what if this anniversary has has taught me anything, the 50 years of Title IX is it is OK to look back of how far we've come. And there has been extreme progress in, um, you know, since the 70s, since this law was passed. But the next 50 years, I hope there is much more progress and much great things and. Your work is really pointing to that. So thank you for all that you do. And she is Rachel Axen, investigative sports reporter in USA Today. Rachel, thank you so much for your time and being here on Take Line. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to Take Line on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode jason will be back soon i love you jason but thank you for letting me sit in bye
0: reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil